It was about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I walk in, and as I walk in, I smell something pungent in my office, terrible. And I look at my desk, and at my desk, there's a poster. And on this poster, it explains in fancy girl writing that I'm being April Fool's pranked, okay? Um, I don't know how you react to pranks. I know how I react to pranks. I don't like pranks. It's just it, something about it bothers me. And I know, like, it was meant for good, but it's like... It was like I filled up with that much air, and I was like, okay, okay, who did this? And I didn't know who did it. So I walked around the office and literally started accusing people, okay? Um, I went to the Rouches, like little Sophia Roush, eight years old or whatever. She was there. I'm like, did you do it? And she's like, did you do what? I'm like, did you do it? Did you do it? And Faith and Wesley were in that. Did you do it? Are you the one who did it? Did you do it? Did I, what, what did I do? And then finally, Sabrina's over there smiling, okay? I don't know where she is right now, but like she's smirking at me, like, hmm, 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 yeah, right, um, so yeah, these people, I'm not going to give the dignity of even saying who it was, but they, 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 it's none of you, but some former students, high school students, they pranked me. But you know what they did to me? They put eggs in my office and they hid them, okay? And that was the joke. I'm like, how is this an April Fool's prank? You actually did a prank on me. Like, that's, it's not April Fool's, like... You're, you act, it actually happened. So anyway, so I, when I walked in, though, I saw this sign, and it said that eggs were hidden. It said a dozen eggs were hidden in my office. And at that point, like, I had two choices, if you think about it. I could either, like, take it seriously and be like, okay, there are 12 eggs in this office. I need to find them. Or I could have been like, no, nah, this is a joke. Clearly, this is a joke. There's, there's no eggs in my office. I took it very seriously, okay? <laughs> I looked for eggs. Partially because I could smell them. But, but it, it might have been a funnier prank, really, if, like, there were no eggs. Like, and I would, like, be paralyzed looking through. Like, I was looking, guys. Like, this was so bad, I literally moved out of my office into a different office that same day. It had nothing to do with the eggs, but I still did, and I like to say that. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. I was looking for eggs, but there was, there was one egg that I couldn't find. And what they did was they had eggs 1 to 12, but egg number 7 they didn't put in there. So I spent a lot of extra time looking for egg number seven, but it wasn't there, okay? I, I took it really seriously and kind of, it made it pretty funny, I guess, if you're the one pranking me, or if there was like some video camera taping me, I guess that would have been really funny. Um, but I took it seriously because I thought, you know what, there's some big, there's some big consequences here if, uh, if I don't take this uh, seriously. If there are eggs in my office and I never look for them, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen the next day? That smell is never going to go away, Okay. Rats, yes, maybe. I don't know. Do I don't know if rats even like eggs. I don't even know. But I had to take it seriously because, like, okay, if it was true, I had to do something about it. And if it wasn't true, then I could forget about it. But I had to at least investigate. I had to at least figure out if it was true or not. Okay, that's what we need to do. That same mindset. That's what we need to bring to the biggest claim that was ever made. Okay, there's a claim that's been made in the Bible that we're going to look at today. That's a huge claim. It's such a big claim that if it's true, it changes everything. If it's not true, we can stop doing church. We can put away our Bibles. We can never read them again. Because if this is not true, that's how important this is. And what we're talking about is the fact that after we just studied in John chapter 19, that Jesus died. What's going to happen in John chapter 20 is John's going to say the tomb was empty. Okay? And that is so important that if it's true, 
and we take it seriously and we find out that it is true by looking at this text and others, then it changes everything about what we should do. But if it's not true, then we are willing to give up on everything we do. And that's how important this is. So grab a Bible. Let's look at John chapter 20, because this is a pivotal point. It's not only a pivotal point in the gospel, it's also a pivotal point for our faith. If this is not true, if what we read here, that the tomb was empty, if that's not true, then everything we do at church is not true and is not really ultimately important if this didn't happen right here. But the thing that I mentioned was, this is a historical event that we can investigate. I use that word investigate, and that's an important word because that's really what we're gonna do today because we're gonna see here that there's three people that this story centers around. Three people, Peter, John, and Mary Magdalene. And these three people do some investigating. And what happens at the end of their investigating is two of them believe wholeheartedly. One of them needs more proof, and we'll see him later on believe. But I want you to see that that's what we have to do when we come to the story of the resurrection. We need to investigate it. And if it's true, we need to believe. And if it's not true, and it didn't happen, then everything we're doing here doesn't really mean much. So that's how important this is. So check it out. John chapter 20, verse 1. Okay, this is the continuation of the story. We just heard how the day of preparation, so to speak, happened the day before which means that it was the Sabbath and um, there wasn't anything going on. So they had to bury Jesus late on Friday night. And when they do that, it says Nicodemus helped. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and they, they buried him really fast. It actually seemed probably like a rushed burial. They usually don't do it this fast, but Jesus was killed. His side was pierced. He was clearly dead. He was buried with all these spices, the 75 pounds of spices that Nicodemus brought. Now it says it was very early on the first day of the week. So now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now I want you to imagine what time of day is it still dark? Like if you're waking up early, okay, what time does it get light these days? Like six o'clock, 6.30, right? So let's imagine it's about this time of year because it was, it's about April. It was, I mean, it's right after Easter for us right now. Let's imagine around the same time of year, Mary Magdalene leaves her house before it even gets light. She shows up to this tomb before the sun even comes out. And look what happens. Is while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, if you're there watching this and you went to a grave site that you just saw someone get buried at, you go back and the, the stone that was in front of the tomb, it was gone. What would your first reaction be? Think about it. If you were in her place and you saw him get buried and then you go back to the tomb after the Sabbath, the first time, really, this is the, the literal first time they're able to do anything. Because on Friday night, okay, on Friday night when the sun went down, they had to be done with all their work because it was officially the Sabbath. Then all day Saturday, they couldn't do any work. So this is the first, very first opportunity Mary has to do anything to go back to what she was doing to serve Jesus and see where he is. She goes back to the tomb and the stone is rolled away. What would you think happened? Okay. I just saw someone get buried um, last week. I think it was, yeah, last Saturday, I saw someone get buried, okay? Um, and I saw the casket, and then we put flowers on the casket, and the casket goes into the ground, okay? Imagine if I went back there, and I saw that the casket was back out of the ground, and it was open, okay? What would your initial reaction, if you saw that, what would you think? Okay. Someone took the body, right? Grave robbers, okay? That wasn't super uncommon, 
So that's what Mary thinks initially. Look what she says. It says, so, verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, right? I think John's talking about himself like he's mentioned himself plenty of times here. He doesn't use his own name, but he reminds the audience, you know, I'm one of Jesus's close disciples and said to them. So Mary comes and reports this to Peter and to John. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. They and we are undefined. You see that? She doesn't say who they are. She doesn't say who we are, okay? She might just be saying we as in me, okay? But she might also be saying that there was an other group of people with her. And we see in the other gospels, we see that Mary was accompanied by some other women. So we think that maybe this first trip was either by herself or she made another trip because it seems like she's back and forth to the tomb this day, the first Easter Sunday. But that's what she does initially. She says, someone's taken the Lord. She doesn't say who, she just says they, somebody. Maybe it was Nicodemus, maybe it was Joseph of Arimathea, maybe it was the Roman officials, maybe it was Pilate, maybe it was the, I mean, it could have been a million people. So she doesn't even know who it is. She says, someone's taken the Lord out of the tomb, which in a sense is true. In one sense, it's true. In another sense, it's not true. So, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reach the tomb first, which I, I just think is really funny. Who, you know, who's the other disciple, right? John, the apostle, the one who wrote it. So he's kind of saying, yeah, me and Peter were going, and then, uh, yeah, P Peter wasn't that fast, you know. So I, I just kind of, you know, I did my thing. I just kind of, I turned on the jets and got there a little faster, right? It's literally what he's saying. He's saying we were both, we started running together, and I got there first. I outran him, okay? How much do you have to outrun a person to say you outran them, Okay. Probably this wasn't like this was a photo finish, okay? It seems like John got there a good amount of time before Peter showed up. But look what it says John did. It says, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in, okay? So imagine the scene, John, Peter running together. John's faster, that just makes sense. I mean, why is John not faster than Peter? John is clearly faster than Peter, guys. Like, that makes sense to me as a, as a John myself, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, whatever. No. None of you are named Peter, are you? Any Peters? No, no Peters. Yeah. Okay, we can make fun of Pastor PJ then because he's a Peter. Um, I just, if, we, if me and Pastor PJ were running, who's going to get there first, right? Who do you think, okay? Um, I don't know. So Peter and John are running. Sorry, it's not about our running skills. Um, but it says he stooped to look in, but he didn't go in, okay? So John is there for a little while, and he's stooping to look in. What does it mean to stoop? kind of means to like, like kind of bend over and kind of look and be like, what's going on in there? But he's hesitant. He's tentative. Now, when Peter shows up, what do you think Peter does? It says, he just like runs straight in, right? I, I, I can just imagine he's just running full speed. He's catching up. He's a little slower than John. And he just goes straight in the tomb, right? Remember, this is the guy who cut the dude's ear off two days ago, okay? Um, he's kind of rash, um, we're going to see in J John chapter 21, when he sees Jesus on the shore, when he's 100 yards off, he throws his, his jacket on and dives into the ocean. Okay, he just can't even, can't even wait. So Peter's just kind of like that. But it says, when Simon Peter came, following him, went in the tomb, into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, which that's been mentioned twice now. John sees it kind of from the outside, that the linen cloths are still there. And also, Peter sees the same thing. It says here, he saw the linen cloth lying there, verse seven, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying 
with the linen cloths, but folded up in, its, in a place by itself, which is interesting. So if you have a grave robbery, okay, and the person's been wrapped up kind of like a mummy, right, totally wrapped up, um, do you expect to see the grave clothes lying there? If someone came in and stole the body, right, the answer is no. Think about it. Think about like wrapping someone with a bunch of toilet paper, okay? Would you expect if someone stole a body wrapped in toilet paper, would you imagine to see all of it just perfectly as it was before, right? No, because criminals usually don't like take a body, unwrap it, which is just gross. And also, if you think about all the spices that were on his body, you'd say, where do those go, right? Did they come to steal the spices? Like, no, no, this is ridiculous, right? But the clothes are still there. John says that twice, okay? I think that's important for us to take in. The clothes were still there, which means someone did not steal this body. This body was not stolen. However the body got out of there was not because someone came in and stole the body. It's very important to note. Verse 8. It says, Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, he likes to mention that twice, um, also went in and saw, and what does it say next? And believed. He doesn't say that Peter believed when he saw. doesn't mean he didn't believe at all, but what do you think this word believe means? Okay. As we've studied the gospel of John, what does Jesus keep telling the people to do? Believe in me. Believe in me. Believe in me. What does that mean? That means to trust in Jesus for everything he said about himself. Trust in him that he is God. Trust in him that, that he can take away people's sin. Trust that he does speak the truth from God. So it seems like when, jo- when John sees this, he understands it. He believes. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, which is interesting, which is saying the Old Testament scriptures say that Jesus must rise from the dead. Most people don't think about that. Verse 10 says, then the disciples went back to their homes. They went home, which sounds insignificant, but if you think about it, you show up to the grave of Jesus, you see the clothes laying there, the, the linens, and then you leave and go back home, and you're like, well, that was crazy. That was weird. That's an odd thing to do. Verse 11 is going to say that Mary Magdalene probably follows because let's just face it, right? These dudes were running. John faster. Peter second fastest. Mary probably came at some point while they were at the tomb, but she stayed there. Okay? It's an interesting point that John makes that they left after this. But I think the most interesting point, the most important thing in this first section is that it says that John saw and believed. And if you notice, even the words that this passage has used, verse 5 says they first stooped to look in. It was like a curious like glance. Then it says in verse number six that Simon Peter, he saw. It's like it was first like a glance, like they kind of noticed it. Then Peter came in and saw what happened. He saw the linen cloths. Then it says that they, in verse eight, they saw and believed. Okay, that word saw, three different words in Greek. They're saw. One, two, three. Three different words. And each one is talking about a more progressive understanding. It was like, oh, they noticed it, then they saw it, then they understood it. They really perceived it. And you see that as they start to understand more here, they're thinking through the fact that this tomb is empty and the implications of that. And that's what I want to do tonight. That's the big idea that we want to do tonight. And that's point number one. I want you to think through the effects of the empty tomb. Think through the effects. Because if we're going to say, okay, if this is such an important deal, the resurrection of Jesus, that if it did not happen, then what we do at church doesn't make any sense, okay? Then we better think through the effects of the empty tomb. They only began to realize the effects of the empty tomb, and they're trying to figure out what happened here. Because you know what it doesn't say? 
it doesn't say that immediately their first reaction to an empty tomb was that Jesus rose from the dead. Now for us, we think, oh, the tomb was empty. That means he rose from the dead. But again, I went to a funeral last weekend, okay? If I saw that the tomb was empty, I wouldn't think he rose from the dead, okay? That's just not how I would think. I think somebody took his body or they moved it or something happened, okay? Same thing with Mary. It takes her a while to understand this. It's not even until the next scene in chapter, uh, verse 11, that we're going to see Mary really understands. But I want to focus on John and Peter in this passage. John and Peter, they stoop to look, then they see, then they perceive, they understand. They think through this a little bit. I want us to think through it too. And I, I want to, you got some subpoints there uh, under point number one, because I, what I want us to do is, okay, if this tomb is empty, what does that mean? Okay. I think the first thing that's very obvious that's kind of the point of all of this, the first subpoint for you, is that Jesus is really alive right now. Okay? Jesus really is alive right now. That's the first thing that this empty tomb means. And I want you to think about that. Jesus really is alive right now. I don't know if you ever read a biography. You probably have at this point. Maybe you read sports biographies or biographies of missionaries. If you read some Christian biographies, um, you know what they all end with? Their death. They usually don't say, and then they rose again, and they kept doing, min-. like, no, 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 they, they, don't, they don't say that at the end. The end of all the biographies are, and they died, and this was their legacy, and it was great, right? They don't end with some resurrection, okay? You see how this biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John, it ends not with Jesus being dead, but Jesus being alive. I want you to think about that. That means right now Jesus is alive, really living, really alive, really with hands and eyes, really alive right now. Think about that. Because when you think of Jesus, I wonder what you think of. Do you think of a person who lived a long time ago, or do you think of a person that's living right now? That's the first big effect of this empty tomb, is that Jesus is alive right now. Not just that he rose again in the past and then died again. Not like Lazarus, right? Even if you think of Lazarus, think about the grave clothes. What happened in John 11 when Lazarus rose from the dead, when Jesus brought him back? What happened to his grave clothes? He was still wearing them. So they had to unwrap him. He like waddled out, it says. He kind of hopped out. Still wearing those grave clothes. What happens when Jesus rises from the dead? He like passes through that. Okay? So his body is remade. He's alive. Really is alive. And I know that's, that's a simple thing. It sounds like something that we, you know, you might have done at the kids' um, marketplace. Right? That tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. But I really want you to think about that. Jesus is alive right now the one you pray to, the one you talk to, the one we sing about, the one that is God and lives in this state of knowing all things, he's alive right now. And he knows you. And he understands everything that you do. And he knows every word that you've said. Right? He's alive right now. When people talk about Jesus and use his name in vain, they're not talking about a person who died a long time ago and is dead. They're talking about someone who's alive right now. Just, I want you to start thinking in those terms because I think that's what the empty tomb is starting to get at. Because something interesting about the empty tomb, no one denied, and I mean no one, no one denied that the tomb was empty. Okay? No one denied that. And here's why I say that. In the Gospel of Matthew, when this is recorded, you know what it says the Jews did when they heard the tomb was empty? They said, let's make up a story. Let's make up a story. Let's say uh, the disciples stole the body. Because right? that actually, if you think about it, for the Jews' perspective, that makes the Romans look bad. Okay? So that makes the Romans look bad if, the, if some Jews stole the body. Great. The, the disciples stole the body. Think about that. That was the first cover-up. 
No one denied that the tomb was empty. All they tried to do was cover up for reasons why it was empty. And the same thing's true today. And I said that that's why we need to investigate this. And there are some alternative theories that I want to just talk through right now. Um, What if there is some other explanation than this right here? What if there's some other explanation? Because that's what the world says. Because if you talk to a non-Christian and you said, you know, you know why we believe in in Christianity? It's because Jesus died and rose again. What are they going to say to that? They're going to say, no, there's no way. That's a fairy tale. I don't believe that. And you're like, no, 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 there actually is. We got four eyewitness accounts from the first century that talk about how he rose again. What are they going to tell you? They're going to say, no. He, then, you know what? If, he, they, if people thought he rose from the dead, maybe it just means the disciples came in and stole the body. Okay? Why don't you think about that for a second? Could the disciples have stolen the body? Okay? Um, first of all, um, they would have had to move a stone, which they couldn't move. Also, the Bible describes them as super afraid, not even wanting to stand up for Jesus when he was alive. How did they get all this boldness after he was dead? That doesn't make any sense. Also, we see that if this was to have happened, um, they lived their lives and defended this truth that Jesus rose from the dead. If you look at the book of Acts, you know it's the most important part of the gospel that they share? That Jesus rose from the dead. That was the punchline to every sermon, it seems like, in the book of Acts. So, if... That was not true. They knew it wasn't true. And they covered it up. People do not die for a lie. They do not die. They do not give their life for something they know is not true. People give their lives all the time for things that they think are good and accurate and true and worthwhile. They don't give their life for things that they don't believe in, that they know that they made up to deceive everybody. They just don't do that. Another thing is, a lot of people say, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. This is a really popular idea that maybe um, he just kind of fainted. He just passed out. If you remember what we read last time in John chapter 19, I think Jesus might have just passed out. Well, um, the problem is that his side was pierced. Okay? That's really important. It says his side was pierced and it was clear that he was dead. I want you to think about the people who killed Jesus. Who were the people that killed Jesus? The Romans, right? Those big, tough Roman soldiers. You think they've ever killed anybody? Probably the people who killed Jesus had killed hundreds of men before them, tortured hundreds of people before Jesus. Jesus was just one of many. They're really good at killing people. And not only was Jesus killed, and not only was Jesus' side pierced, Jesus was also buried. Now think about that. You're buried, even if you're alive, and you get buried, but getting buried alive and stuff wrapped around your head. Literally, it says that there's cloth that they wrap around your head. What do you think happens if you're not alive, or if you are alive, and something's wrapped around your head real tight, right? Probably not going to make it that way either. So this idea that Jesus didn't die is completely inaccurate. So clearly, Jesus died. Clearly, the disciples at least thought that Jesus rose from the dead. And that brings maybe the most popular one today, that the disciples had visions, or they just hallucinated. They just thought they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Mary is just so grief-stricken, she just thought she saw Jesus. Peter and John, they just thought the tomb was empty. They were just, maybe it was a dream, or they all just thought that together. Well, part of the problem with that is the Bible's clear that it wasn't just John and Peter and Mary, okay? The other gospels say it was a whole group of women. More than that, it says that later on in our passage, Jesus is going to show up to all the disciples, including a guy named Thomas, who didn't believe that Jesus could rise from the dead. 
And more than that, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how the gospel is centered in historical reality. Like this is a super important passage. I want you to write it down. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 7. This passage, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel. And the gospel has historical backing. It's not some moral teaching. It's not some fairy tale that we made up. No, this is not a myth. This is truth. This is history. This is reality. This is what really happened. This is what you received and in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter. He appeared to Peter and then to the 12. We're gonna see that later in John chapter 20. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So it seems like Jesus has some sermon or some meeting where he meets with 500 of his disciples after he rose from the dead. Okay? 500 people do not have group hallucinations and all imagine they saw something. Okay? That just doesn't happen. It says, and most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It says, some of those eyewitnesses you can go talk to. Go write a letter to them. They will tell you. They were there. They saw him. It says, some are still alive, although some have died. It says, then he appeared to James. That's the brother of Jesus. And then to all the apostles, this whole group of people, not just the 12, but then a group even beyond. We've got all these people that are seeing Jesus. Okay? So Jesus clearly was dead. The tomb was clearly empty. People clearly saw him. And it wasn't just one or two. It was hundreds of people. Okay? Jesus really is alive right now. Okay? That's so important for us to get. And I want you to think about this. If Jesus rose from the dead and he is alive right now, you know what that does? That validates everything he said in his life. Okay? We're almost done studying the gospel of John, but I want you to think about this. How many times has Jesus said something that sounds crazy about himself? How many times has he said something that shocks everybody where they're like, no, there's no way this could be true. It happened all the time. Like almost every single chapter of the gospel of John, Jesus said something outlandish and amazing if it were not true. But when he rose from the dead, you know what it proved? That everything Jesus said was true. Everything. That's the second thing. Jesus really spoke the truth. That's letter B. Jesus really spoke the truth. That's what the empty tomb signifies. Not only that Jesus is alive right now and that he really physically, bodily rose from the dead, but also that when Jesus was doing his ministry, all the things he said was true, everything. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that he died and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. It says in John 20 here, verse, I think it's number eight, verse number nine, this is John 29, we just read it. It says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Okay, I wanna answer that question. What's the scripture? What's the passage in the Old Testament that says that Jesus must rise from the dead? Okay. The word scripture here is a singular verb. It's not a multiple. It's not the scriptures that talk about it. So I think John does have one in mind, but there are more than one. There are multiple. So I'm guessing the best guess we have for the one that he has in mind here is the one that Peter quoted on the first day of the church. It's a passage, Psalm chapter 16 is what Peter quotes in Acts chapter two. In his first sermon, he talks about how Jesus rose from the dead in accordance with the scripture, and he gives a scripture. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, I'll read it for you. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to death. You won't let me stay dead or let your Holy One see corruption. 
right? God's holy one, to see a, a corrupting of the body. And you might say, well, wait a minute, like, who's that really talking about, though? Because is that really talking about Jesus? Like, it seems like the author is saying that about himself, right? That's exactly what Peter gets to in Acts chapter 2. He says, you know, David wrote this, and da- David, he's dead, and his grave is with us, okay? So clearly, David was talking about something beyond just him, that God wouldn't let him down or something. No, he's clearly saying that there is a someone, a holy one, that won't see corruption, whose body will stay dead for a short amount of time, but then will come back to life. There's another passage, I think, in the Old Testament that he might be referring to here. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, 11, and 12. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, talking about Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So that means that after this person dies, he will see the people that come after him. Think about that. After a person dies, they will see the people that come after them, their offspring, so to speak. Verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, making intercession for the transgressors. Okay, that's talking about Jesus, and it's talking a lot about his death, but think about it. He's like, and I'm interacting with this person who's died. Think about that. He died, clearly, in Isaiah 53, this promised person's gonna die, but it's like, they're gonna die, but then they're, they're like gonna be undead. <laughs> they're gonna die, but then they're gonna like see beyond, and they're gonna see their offspring, and they're gonna see the people that come after them, okay? So we think that these are the two main passages in the Old Testament, that really point forward to the resurrection of Jesus. But we said here that not only does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament scripture, but also the things he said about himself, okay? And I want you to think back through the Gospel of John. How many things did Jesus say about himself that are validated through the resurrection, okay? I've got a list for you, another list, okay? If you think through, one of the most amazing things Jesus said was that he was God, right? He said he was God, that's pretty important. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So that means is before Abraham ever was born, I existed as God. The I am, Yahweh from the Old Testament, the Lord from the Old Testament. That's me. That's what he says about himself. That's validated here. Also, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and if you come to me, and if you partake in what I'm going to do, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst, you'll be satisfied forever if you're part of my group on the bread of life. John 6. 35, I'm the bread of life. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world, John 8, 12. What does that mean? He's gonna bring truth to the world. When he comes into this world and he shares the truth about himself, he's gonna share it for the world to see. John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, they know me. I'm the good shepherd, that he's gonna lead us perfectly forever. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Me and God, we are one. Old Testament says that God is one. Jesus says, me and God are one. Think about that for a second. If Jesus and the Father are one, and God is one, that means that Jesus is God. It's just another way of him saying that. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the only way to God. If you want to get to know God, there's only one way that you can do that, and it's through me. I'm the way, 
I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And here's the thing I want you to understand. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't rise, none of this would be true. The fact that he's the only way to God, all that stuff, that's just not true. If he doesn't rise from the dead, none of this is true. If he doesn't rise from the dead, then I guess he's not really God. I guess he doesn't really have that much power then if he didn't rise from the dead. But when he rose, he proved all this stuff. More than that, when he rose, he did a third thing. It's letter C. Jesus really conquered death. Okay? He really conquered death. When he rose from the dead and we see an empty tomb, you know what that means? That it means that Jesus really did conquer death. The reason we say that is we look at the Bible, we see John chapter 10, verse 18, just to stay in the Gospel of John. We've referenced this a lot recently. This is, I think, one of the most important verses. I didn't even know it was going to be this important until I started studying this more. But John 10, 18 Jesus says that no one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So what does Jesus say? I have the ability to rise from the dead. I can lay down my life, and I can take it back up again. And you might say, well, that's great. He just says he has power for himself, though. Well, there's other passages that say he has power for you, too. John chapter 6, verse 40. John 6, 40 Jesus said, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him, just like John did, just like Mary's going to, looks on him, believes on him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when Jesus rose from the dead, you know what that proved? It proved John 10, 18, that he has power to do that. But you know what it also proved? It also proved John 6, 40, that he'll raise you too that he'll give you new life too, that he has the power to do that too. That is how important the resurrection is. And if it didn't happen, work yourself backwards logically, then he doesn't have the power to defeat the grave. And he, he can't give you new life. And I guess everyone who's died in Christ will stay dead forever. And you'll never be reacquainted with a loved one that's died in Christ. And it's all over and it's hopeless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's how important this is. It's the center of everything we believe as Christians. And it's so helpful. And God was so good to make it a historical event with eyewitnesses and an empty tomb and no other explanation for why the tomb could be empty except for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, I mentioned it before, but verse 17 says a lot of what we just said here. It says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or it's fake. It doesn't do anything good and you're still in your sins. Then, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, the ones who've died in Christ, they've perished. They're, they're gonna go to hell. That's what Jesus says. If Jesus, or Paul says that. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the people who died hoping in Christ would be believing a lie. They've perished, gone forever. If in Christ, we now in this life have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. People should feel bad for us. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're a bunch of idiots. That's what Jesus says here. We're stupid. That's what he says. We should be pitied. Everyone should look at us and say, you guys are stupid. That's what Paul says about Christians. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the truth right there. That Jesus did die, but Jesus did rise again. He was raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So those who've died, when he comes back to life, he's like the prototype. He's the first one off the assembly line. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep or died. 
Verse 21 says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when Jesus rose from the dead, you know what that secured for us? That one day you and your body, when it dies and it decays in a grave and it goes down to nothing, that Jesus will remake your body and you will live in a perfect new body for eternity. That's what happens at the resurrection. That's proved. That's accomplished. His power is shown. Has that power all been enacted to make it happen and bring everyone who's died back to life? Not yet, but it's gonna happen. And that's what's proved here in the resurrection. And even more than that, the Bible goes on and it says, not even just in the future, but also right now, the resurrection has an impact. Romans 6 chapter 4, or Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, we were buried with Jesus figuratively with, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the resurrection doesn't just say in the future one day we'll be made perfect, but it says even right now, because Jesus rose from the dead, that means that Jesus will give us the power to have new life, repentance, truly walking in righteousness, newness of life because he rose from the dead. The effects of the empty tomb are huge. The effects of the empty tomb are eternal and it changes everything for those who trust in Christ. Look at verse 11, back in John chapter 20. John 20, verse 11. What happens to Mary? It says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Why is she weeping? Why is she crying? Because it says John saw and he believed something. He saw the empty tomb and he thought, you know what, I, this, he got it. He understood. Mary is, doesn't understand yet. She's weeping. And as she weeps, she stooped to look into the tomb. Same, same phrase that's used about John at first. Like kind of looking, afraid to really see what's going on in there. And it says, when she looked, she saw two angels, verse 12, in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. You can imagine kind of like a stone bed in there, right? Where Jesus' body was down. It says, now there's two angels, one on one side and one on the other. And a lot of people have looked at this and said, you know, that looks a lot like the Ark of the Covenant. It looks a lot like the mercy seat in the Old Testament where these two angels sat, where propitiation was made, where satisfaction of God's wrath was made. Two angels, a lot like that. It seems like John's trying to show that this is kind of like that Old Testament figure. It says in verse 13, they said to her, both these angels, they say to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? I don't think they're saying that because they don't understand, but they're asking that like your parents sometimes ask you, hey, why, why are you crying? Why are you crying? It's, it's trying to comfort them, trying to get their attention somewhere else. And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. She still thinks that Jesus is dead. She still thinks he's dead. That's why she's weeping. Having said this, she turned around. So she's in the tomb. Now she turns around and saw Jesus standing outside the tomb. But she did not know it was Jesus. So whatever she's feeling right now, whatever she's thinking right now, she doesn't see. She sees, but she doesn't see. She sees it with her eyes, but she doesn't perceive what's happening. It's a good picture of what happens a lot in the Gospel of John, that people see Jesus, they understand him, but they don't really get it. It's like a lot of people in church. They hear the Gospel, but they don't really get it. 
It doesn't really connect. It says, she saw Jesus. She didn't understand it was Jesus. Verse 15. Jesus said the same question that the angels asked, but adds another one, perhaps a more important one. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? It's basically what that question means. Who are you looking for? Whom are you seeking right now? It's interesting because she's actually not seeking a person at this moment. What is she seeking? She's seeking a thing. She's seeking a dead body. That's what she's looking for. She's not looking for a person. She's looking for a dead body. But Jesus corrects even that thing. He says, who are you looking for? Right? And you see how this is all leading back to him, right? Supposing him to be a gardener. So Mary thinks that whoever's asking this question is just someone who kind of works in the area, works in that garden. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. Tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. If you're doing some random tomb cleaning or something, um, just let, let me have his body. I, I'll take care of it. If you moved his body, like that's fine. Just let me take care of it. That's what she's trying to do. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, or Miriam in the original. She turned, which means, think about that. If she turned, to, turned back to Jesus, it's like she was in the tomb looking at the angels. Then she turned around to talk to him, didn't really understand what he was saying, turned back around. And as her back is faced to Jesus, Jesus says her name, Mary, Miriam. And then she turns around and she gets it. She, she understands in that moment when Jesus says her name, she gets it. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means rabbi, teacher, Lord. Jesus said something very interesting here. So I think some time might pass between that last thing and what happens next. You can imagine she turned back around, said, Rabboni, my Lord, my teacher. What do you think she does? You think she just kind of stands there? No, she probably does what she would expect her to do. She runs up and probably hugs him, right? She's probably hanging on to him at this point, maybe falling at his feet. We don't really know. Seemed like the other Mary in the Gospel of John really hung at Jesus' feet before. The other Mary, not this Mary. But it, it seems like that's probably what's going on here because Jesus says, don't cling to me. Don't touch me. Sounds weird. It's like, why is Jesus being so mean here? But he's saying, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go. And tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. We don't really know why Jesus doesn't want Mary to stick around right now, but we think that the reason that Mary's hanging on to Jesus is probably like a mom who lost her son or a loved one who lost another loved one who's hanging on to them. I don't want to let you go. You left once, don't leave again. It's probably what Mary's thinking. And Jesus has to correct that thinking. Saying, Mary, it's not like it was before. I'm not going to stick around. I'm here, I'm risen, but I'm not gonna, it's not going to be like before. When Lazarus died and he rose again, guess what? People could cling to him because he was going to live a full life. I don't know how long he lived, but he lived at least a good amount of time afterwards. Jesus says, I'm alive, I'm here, but I'm not staying here. I haven't ascended to my father. You know, one day you can cling to me, but just not today. One day you can hang on to my physical presence as comfort, but not today because my physical presence is going to leave and go somewhere else. It's going to ascend to the Father. But go, tell my brothers. It's interesting. 
The disciples are never called the brothers of Jesus until this moment right here. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that they're called my brothers. They're called servants. They're called disciples. They're called apostles. They're called followers. They're called friends even, but they're never called brothers until right here. To my God and your God, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I've seen him. I've seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. She explained what happened. I think the point that Mary gets to, she recognizes who Jesus is. She gets it. That's the thing I want us to get to. Point number two, recognize Jesus as the living Lord. Recognize Jesus as the living Lord. It was like for her, she saw, but she didn't see until she did see. And then when she saw, she understood. That that idea, that, that paradigm, that picture is a lot of what happens in the gospel of John. People see Jesus, people hear Jesus, but they don't really understand. They see him, but they don't really perceive. And that's the truth of what happens a lot here in this building. A a lot of you, when we study the Bible, you see what happens. You hear what happens. You hear what Jesus said, but you don't really perceive. You see, but you don't get it. It's like, what if I told you, try to explain the the, the color purple to a person who's blind and has never seen color. How would you do that? You'd be like, well, they can't see it. How can I... How can I explain you? Like, it's like a mixture of red and blue. It's like, well, what are red and blue? Right? If a person's never had their eyes opened, they've never seen color, how could you explain purple to them? Right? You can't. Right? And that's the hard part because unless your spiritual eyes have been opened to the truth of this resurrection, all it might be to you is a historical event that happened a long time ago. And that's probably the reality for some of us now. But Jesus when he rose, did more than just take back his life to show off or something like that. All we talked about in point number one, all that stuff, Jesus accomplished that. In the Gospel of John, if you remember, Jesus healed a guy who was blind. And it was an interesting picture because not only did he actually heal someone who was actually blind, he did do that, but also it was like this picture for what the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were blind, but didn't understand that they were blind. But this blind guy knew he was blind and asked Jesus for help. And that was a picture of a lot of what was going on. Jesus actually turned around and said to those people in John chapter 9, the Pharisees heard these things and said, are we blind? Are you saying that we're blind, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. Because if you really understood your blindness and your need for me, you would ask me for help. You would call out to me. But because you say we see and we're all good, we don't need you your guilt remains. If you don't think you need the resurrected Jesus, your guilt is still on you. John's pretty clear about that in his gospel. If you don't believe in Jesus, your guilt stays on you. You will have to pay for your sins if you do not believe and trust in this risen Jesus. You, you You have to deal with it on your own. A lot of people have noted this. I'm not the first person to say this, but when Jesus calls Mary's name, she knows it's him. You know, Jesus actually said that earlier in, in the gospel. In John 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and they know my voice. They know me when I call. It's a cool picture. And I think John means to include this, that when one of his sheep hear their name called by Jesus, it's interesting that when this lady hears her name called by Jesus, what does she do? She believes, she knows his voice, she understands. I think John's trying to show that. That passage goes on. This is John chapter 10, verse 24. It says, the Jews gathered around him. 
and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, just tell us. Jesus answered them, I told you, but you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. And the greatest work Jesus ever did was rising from the dead. They bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. That's what he says to these people who didn't trust in him. You're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's exactly what happens in the resurrection. That Jesus gives us eternal life, and no one's able to take it away from us. This is my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our goal, our whole purpose in saving people is one. We are one together. John saw and he believed. Mary saw, took her a little bit longer, but she understood and she believed. You've seen a lot about Jesus. You've heard a lot about Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you've believed or trusted in him. The point of this whole gospel that we're studying, and we got two more lessons from this gospel, is that you would see and believe, that you would hear and understand. You wouldn't just hear church stuff that we're talking about here, but you would understand that Jesus is everyone who he said he was. He is everything that he said he was. And that you should believe while he's offering forgiveness because one day everyone will believe. Everyone will believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Everyone will see that when they see him face to face. But he's offering forgiveness now to those who believe in him. He offered forgiveness to Mary and to, Jesus, and to, to John and to Peter. He's gonna offer it to Thomas next week. But we need to trust in Jesus while we have the opportunity to be forgiven. Let's pray.